Welcome to Hub History, the show where we share our favorite stories from Boston history. This is episode 75, Hope's Day Remastered. Hi, I'm Nikki. And I'm Jake. This week, we're going to continue working through our classic early episodes, adding more content, better material, and hopefully upping our sound quality a good bit. This week, we're taking a second look at Pope's Day, that rowdy night when our colonial forefathers roamed the streets with effigies of the Pope, playing a high-stakes, anti-Catholic version of Capture the Flag. But before we talk about Pope's Night, it's time to take a look at this week's featured historic site and upcoming event. This week's featured historic site is Gore Place in Waltham, one of our favorite historic homes. Christopher Gore was a prominent Massachusetts figure at the turn of the 19th century, who served as a U.S. Senator, U.S. Attorney, and Governor of Massachusetts. Gore was born in 1758 to Francis and John Gore, a successful merchant and artisan. At age 13, he enrolled at Harvard College, a bit of a prodigy in his day. He graduated in 1776 and enlisted in the Continental Artillery Regiment of his brother-in-law, Thomas Crafts, where he served as a clerk. The Gore family was one of many divided by the war, with his loyalist father evacuating alongside the British Army, while Christopher, his mother, and three sisters remained in Boston. Gore went on to establish a successful law practice in Boston and amassed a fortune by purchasing revolutionary government debts at a discount and receiving full value for them from the government. In addition to holding multiple offices throughout his career, Gore invested in a variety of businesses, including the Middlesex Canal, the Boston Manufacturing Company, and the Merrimack Manufacturing Company. In 1785, he married Rebecca Amory Payne, the daughter of a wealthy Boston merchant and banker. They used the funds from her dowry to purchase a 50-acre tract in Waltham for use as a country estate, which was later expanded bit by bit to 400 acres. This was in addition to a mansion in Bowdoin Square, home to elites such as Harrison Gray Otis. In 1793, they had the house on the Waltham property torn down and replaced by a wood-frame mansion and carriage house for use as a summer estate. But just three years later, in 1796, Gore was appointed by George Washington to a post in London overseeing maritime issues pursuant to the Jay Treaty, which facilitated post-revolution trade between the United States and Great Britain. The Gores lived abroad from 1796 to 1804. In 1799, the Waltham House was destroyed by fire. In 1801, the couple went on an extended tour of Europe, including a six-month stay in Paris. During this stay, they met architect Joseph Guillaume Legrand. With her interest piqued after meeting the architect, Rebecca Gore sketched out plans for a new Waltham home. Christopher sent some of her sketches to Legrand to draft plans for them. The Gores returned to Massachusetts in 1804, and the home was completed in 1806 at a cost of $23,000, or $3.6 million today. The large-scale federal-style mansion allowed the Gores to entertain prominent guests, such as the Marquis de Lafayette, Daniel Webster, and James Monroe. The mansion's been restored to the glory of the Gore era, including some uncovered, naughty wallpaper in Christopher's office. Guests also learn about the mansion's state-of-the-art technological features, 
an indoor hot shower, and a laundry dryer. A special note about another prominent resident of the home. Robert Roberts served as the head butler from 1824 to 26. A Boston Globe article explains his significance. In an era where few careers were open to literate black men, Roberts took advantage of the chance to prove his ambition, refinement, and work ethic. In an age when most black people were invisible and disposable, Roberts, as head butler, could prove that he was indispensable. Obedience to the employer was required not because the servant was inferior, he believed, but because obedience in working life would enable financial independence in the servant's personal life. Roberts wrote The House Servant's Directory, one of the first books by an African-American to be published by a commercial press. It was considered essential reading for anyone working as or employing a professional servant for the next two decades, and it went through three editions. The book includes everything from advice on behavior toward fellow servants to instructions on how to tell fresh eggs from stale ones, and from recipes for silver polish to directions for carving a haunch of mutton. Today, museums all over the country use it as a reference for displays of federal period rooms and place settings. Little is known of Robert's early life, though being born in Charleston, one assumes that even if born free, he must have been affected by slavery. In Boston, he was a vocal abolitionist who opposed raising funds for colonization, a plan at the time to return free black Americans to Africa. In the March 12, 1831 edition of William Lloyd Garrison's abolitionist newspaper, The Liberator, Roberts wrote, O ye schemers, why do ye undertake to impose on the free people of color by telling them that Africa is their native soil, when our fathers fought for liberty and received nothing for it, and laid their bones here? We claim this as our native soil and not Africa, for we are sensible that if the land flowed with milk and honey, you would not send a colored person to it. For it is evident some of you would go to the uttermost parts of the world for one dollar's gain. Therefore, we know that it is not through pure love that you want to send us to Africa. Robert Roberts' room is carefully preserved between the main floors of Gore Place. You can visit to learn more about his life as well as that of the Gores. House tours are available Monday through Saturday for a $12 fee, and Gore Place is available by public transit. We'll post details in this week's show notes, as well as an app to take a virtual tour of the grounds. And for our upcoming event this week, we're spotlighting the exhibit In Camp at Reedville, a 3D exhibition created and presented by the 54th Regiment Reenactors and Historical Society. Per the Menino Arts Center website, this is a rare and exciting 3D exhibition that visually brings to life what it was like to be part of the historical camp of the brave men who served in the 54th Regiment, the first African-American regiment organized in the northern states during the Civil War. An actual mock camp with tents and period artifacts, along with photos, will be set up in the hall and rooms at the Menino Arts Center. Members of the reenactors will be on hand during the exhibit to answer questions. The installation and presentation will highlight and educate this important period in U.S. and Hyde Park history. It's offered proudly in partnership with the celebration of Hyde Park's 150th year of incorporation. The Menino Arts Center, located near Cleary Square in Hyde Park, is open Thursday through Saturday and accessible by public transit. We'll post more information in this week's show notes. But now, let's turn to our main topic. Any discussion of Pope's Night begins with Guy Fawkes. 
1603, James I ascended to the English throne as the successor to Elizabeth I. Some English Catholics saw this change in rule as an opportunity to reinstate a Catholic monarchy. On October 26, 1605, just days before Parliament was set to open, Lord Monteagle received an anonymous note. My Lord, out of the love I bear to some of your friends, I have a care of your preservation. Therefore, I would advise you as you tender your life to devise some excuse to shift of your attendance at this Parliament. For though there is to be no appearance of any stir, yet I say they shall receive a terrible blow. The writer urged him to destroy the note, but instead Monteagle forwarded the letter to Robert Cecil, chief minister of King James. There were swirling rumors that Catholics were planning to overthrow the monarchy and install James's daughter as a puppet ruler, which this note seemed to confirm. Though Catholic himself, Monteagle did not support the plan, known as the gunpowder plot, or else he feared the grisly fate he would face if it was discovered that he had been alerted and remained silent. The king ordered a search of the cellars underneath Parliament early in the morning on November 5th, the day Parliament was set to begin. Guy Fawkes was found guarding a storeroom in the Undercroft, though, unlike the other watchmen, he was dressed in riding clothes and spurs. Inside the storeroom, barrels of gunpowder were found hidden under piles of firewood and coal. Fox was arrested and found to be carrying a watch, matches, and a fuse. Under interrogation and asked by one of the lords what he was doing with so much gunpowder, Fox expressed his desire to blow you Scotch beggars back to your native mountains. He admitted his plan and regretted only his failure. While being tortured to reveal his true identity and that of his co-conspirators, the supervising lieutenant said, He told us that since he undertook this action, he did every day pray to God that he might perform that which might be for the advancement of the Catholic faith and saving his own soul. Fox revealed his identity and the existence of his five co-conspirators on November 7th. He began to reveal their names on November 8th, and told how they intended to place Princess Elizabeth on the throne. While it is uncertain if he was tortured on the rack, his faint, scrawled signature indicates that he was under deep physical duress. Fox was found guilty and sentenced to be drawn backwards to his death by a horse, his head near the ground, then to be put to death halfway between heaven and earth as unworthy of both. His genitals would be cut off and burnt before his eyes, and his bowels and heart would be removed. He would be decapitated, and the dismantled parts of his body displayed at the four corners of the kingdom, so that they might become prey for the fowls of the air. Miraculously, Fox had become so weak that he tripped on his way up the scaffold. He broke his neck and enjoyed a quick death. So what does all this have to do with Boston? Protestants began celebrating the day as a victory over Catholicism, and after the Glorious Revolution of 1688 put the British crown firmly in Protestant hands, it really took off as a great patriotic holiday, probably akin to our Fourth of July celebrations. Bonfires, an effigy of Fox, and fireworks were used to mark the anniversary of the event, by Protestants, of course. The tradition followed the staunchly Protestant colonists who came to Boston, 
and was celebrated with much fervor through drinking, rioting, and anti-elitist revelries from working-class men. The earliest known celebration of Pope's Night took place on November 5, 1623 in Plymouth, just 18 years post-failed assassination. A group of sailors built a bonfire, which raged out of control, and destroyed several nearby homes. By the 1720s, bonfires gave way to parades, in which effigies of the Pope, the Devil, political enemies, were all paraded through the streets. The revelers were most often sailors, laborers, apprentices, lesser artisans, servants, and African-American slaves. Notably, there are no accounts of a woman ever participating. The festivities were celebrated most wildly in Boston, a major port with lots of sailors and other working-class men, looking for a night of drinking and brawling. The anti-Catholic themes made the rioting socially acceptable to those in power, but Pope's Night was just as much about protesting the rule of the upper class as it was about the Pope. North End and South End residents celebrated by building parade floats, typically 10 or 12 feet long, but some as large as 40 feet, with two platforms. The upper platform served as a stage for the giant effigies that were controlled by men standing on the lower platform. The effigies were translucent, and lanterns were hung inside to make them glow. Given that we had no streetlights at the time, you can imagine that they would have been pretty creepy. Picture a ten-foot, glow-in-the-dark animated devil rolling down the street, surrounded by a mob of drunken, rowdy men and older boys. It was not a night for women and children, to say the least. In the early years, North End residents would wheel their float through their own neighborhood, while the South End did the same thing. The floats would then meet and peaceably pass one another to tour the other area. Masked and costumed revelers stopped at the homes of wealthy residents and threatened to break their windows unless they contributed funds for the festivities. They would then set up bonfires, the North End at Copse Hill and the South End on the Common, where they burned the effigies and drank copiously. By the mid-1700s, traditions evolved. When the North and South End processions met, they would fight a street battle with each group trying to capture the other's pope. The fighters attacked each other with clubs and brickbats, often resulting in serious injuries and sometimes even death. In 1735, four apprentices drowned while canoeing home after the bonfire. In 1764, a carriage bearing an effigy of the Pope ran over a boy's head, killing him instantly. Isaiah Thomas, who took part in the celebrations as a child in the 1750s and 60s and suffered a serious head injury, gives us this description in the history of printing in America. Nowhere in the British Dominions was the 5th of November, the anniversary of the discovery of the gunpowder plot, celebrated with more zeal and zest and mock pomp and ceremony than in the good town of Boston. Strife and rivalry had for some time existed between the north and south ends of the town, which should have the more august celebration and soonest put to rout the procession and parade of the other. The line of division between the north and south was the old Mill Creek, now Blackstone Street. Collections were levied upon the inhabitants on the morning of the day, asked for, but few thought it was quite safe to refuse. The money was spent in part for the pomp and circumstance of war, and largely for liquor. The principal effigies of the Pope and the Devil, the supposed instigators of the plot, 
were placed upon a stage and mounted on cartwheels and drawn by horses. At the front of the stage was a large lantern of oiled paper four or five feet wide and eight or nine feet high. On the front was painted in large letters, The Devil Take the Pope, and just below this, North End Forever, or South End Forever. Behind the lantern sat the Pope in an armchair, and behind the Pope was the Devil, standing erect with extended arms, one hand holding a smaller lantern, and the other grasping a pitchfork. The heads of the Pope and Devil were on poles, which went through their bodies and the stage beneath. Boxed up out of sight sat a boy whose mission was to sway the heads from side to side, as fancy suggested. The devil, without consideration for his home climate, was clad in tar and feathers from top to toe, from head to foot. Other effigies were sometimes seen, suspended from gallows, of persons who had incurred the indignation and hatred of the mob, such as the pretender Admiral Bing, Earl Boot, and Lord North. Ancillary devils and popes were drawn or carried by men and boys, as various in size as the men and boys who bore them, some even on shingles and bits of board. Assembling about dusk, north and south end, under their respective leaders, processions were formed. The lanterns, great and small, lighted, and through a speaking trumpet the order was given to move on. With this, the noise and tumult began. The blowing of conch shells, whistling through the fingers, beating with clubs the sides of houses, cheering, huzzahing, swearing, and rising above all the din, the cry, North End Forever, or South End Forever. The devils on the stages were not the only or chiefest proof that the underworld was let loose. The procession that first reached the Mill Creek gave three cheers and rushed on to meet their foes. As they approached, the strife began. Clubs, stones, and brickbats were freely used, and though persons were not often killed, bruised shins, broken heads, and bones were not infrequent. It was on one of these peaceful nights, when the North Enders had been as far south as the Elm Tree soon after, so well known as the Liberty Tree, and were on their return, masters of the situation, though now and then receiving a complimentary brick from the South Enders secreted in lane or passageway, that our little printer, with a large bump of curiosity and a small one of caution, pressed through the crowd to read the labels on the lanterns. A brick aimed at the lantern, laid it on his head, and struck him to the ground. The chances were for the little fellow to be trampled to death by the rushing crowd, but as his good fortune, or a kind providence would have it, the first man whose foot struck him, hearing his groans, lifted him up, and persons coming around with lights, one of them recognized him, took him in his arms, and carried him to his master's house. A surgeon being sent for, it was found that no bone was broken, and in a few days he was able to return to his types. Such is in substance the account given by Mr. Thomas in later years. It does not speak very well for the refinement of manners of what was then the most cultivated town of British America, and is worth perhaps the passing notice of those who are continually asking why the former days were better than these. It would seem that Isaiah Thomas was not in favor of making Boston great again. Tensions between the classes were strained to the breaking point over Pope's Night. 
1775 newspaper article referred to the revelers of the past as rude and intoxicated rabble, the very dregs of the people, black and white. In 1748, the justices of the peace announced that, whereas sundry persons have heretofore gone about the streets armed with clubs and demanding money of the inhabitants and breaking the windows of those who refuse it, they plan to send out constables to keep the peace. In 1753, the Great and General Court passed an act forbidding all riotous, tumultuous, and disorderly assemblies from carrying pageants and other shows through the streets and lanes of the town of Boston and other towns of this province, abusing and insulting the inhabitants. The court passed similar acts in 1756, 1758, 1763, and 1769, but the revels still continued. The 1769 Riot Act imposed penalties for shaking down wealthy residents. Be it enacted that if any persons being more than three in number, and being armed all or either of them with sticks, clubs, or any kind of weapons, or disguised with vizards, so-called, or painted or discolored faces, or being in any other manner disguised, shall assemble together having imagery or pageantry for a public show, shall by menaces of otherwise exact require, demand, or ask any money or other thing of value from any of the inhabitants or other persons in the streets, lanes, in any town within this province, shall for each offense forfeit and pay the sum of forty shillings, or suffer imprisonment not exceeding one month, or, if the offender shall be a negro servant, he may be whipped not exceeding ten stripes." One reason these laws were not effective is that the militia preferred to join in the fun rather than enforce the rules. So, what brought Pope's Night to an end? Essentially, the Stamp Act of 1765. The Loyal Nine were a group of nine men who led the Sons of Liberty and linked the working class to the upper class. After the act passed, the Loyal Nine orchestrated the unification of the North and South End mobs. On Pope's Night, 1765, townspeople held a union feast with a single procession led jointly by the South End leader, Ebenezer McIntosh, and the North End leader, Samuel Swift. Now that interests were aligned, John Hancock and other Patriot merchants provided them with food, drink, and supplies. Ten years later, and now allies with the French as the revolution began, George Washington pretty much dropped the mic on Pope's Night. As the commander-in-chief has been apprised of a design formed for the observance of that ridiculous and childish custom of burning the effigy of the Pope, he cannot help expressing his surprise that there should be officers and soldiers in this army, so void of common sense, as not to see the impropriety of such a step at this juncture, at a time when we are soliciting and have really obtained the friendship and alliance of the people of Canada, whom we ought to consider as brethren embarked in the same cause, the defense of the general liberty of America. At such a juncture, and in such circumstances, to be insulting their religion is so monstrous as not to be suffered or excused. Indeed, instead of offering the most remote insult, it is our duty to address public thanks to these our brethren, as to them, we are so much indebted for every late happy success over the common enemy in Canada. And that's really all George Washington had to say about that. Sherwood Collins, in Boston's political street theater, the 18th century Pope's Day pageant, 
argues that the tradition ended in Boston at this time not only because of Washington's order, but because most of the celebrants were likely patriots who did not stay in Boston while it was held by the British. And, moreover, because it celebrated the failure of a plot against the British king and parliament, who were now actually the enemy. To learn more about Pope's Night, check out this week's show notes at hubhistory.com 075. We'll have links to Isaiah Thomas's memoir, sketches of Pope's Day floats, Sherwood Collins' book on Pope's Night, and Boston 1775's posts that touch upon Pope's Night. And of course, we'll have links to information about this week's featured historic site and upcoming event. Before we sign off, I'd like to invite you to hang out with us at History Camp Boston on July 7th. I'll be speaking as part of a podcasting panel that features some of our favorite history podcasters. I'll share the stage with Mick Sullivan from The Past and the Curious, Edward O'Donnell of In the Past Lane, Liz Covart, who started Ben Franklin's World, and the world-famous Tracy V. Wilson from Stuff You Missed in History Class. I'm starstruck just thinking about it. You can get the details, read about the other great sessions that'll be offered, and register to attend at historycamp.org Boston. Before we let you go, a reminder that we are collecting family stories and personal anecdotes about the 1918 Spanish flu. This year marks the 100th anniversary of the most deadly pandemic in human history, and it first turned deadly here in Boston. We'd like to include some of your family stories in a show we'll release later this summer. Did someone in your family get sick with influenza in 1918? Did they work in a hospital or volunteer with the Red Cross? Did they serve in a military unit whose readiness was affected by the flu? We set up a hotline where you can get in touch with us at 617-383-9255. If you have an anecdote that takes about a minute to tell, just record it in a voicemail that we can use on the show. If you have a longer story you think we should hear, leave your contact information and we'll get in touch. The number is 617-383-9255. If you want to share your family's 1918 flu story, correct our grammar, or give us any other feedback on the show, you can email us at podcast at hubhistory.com. We are Hub History on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, or you can go to hubhistory.com and click on the Contact Us link. While you're on the site, hit the subscribe link and be sure that you never miss an episode. If you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, please think about writing us a brief review. It's still the best way to help others discover the show. That's all for now. We'll be back next time to talk about some of Paul Revere's less famous rides. <laughs> <laughs>